You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in to the Hazard Ground Podcast. This week's guest is a West Point graduate. He's a U.S. Army Ranger. He's a Special Forces soldier who led nearly 300 capture or kill missions in his three deployments to Iraq. And most notably, he is the founder of Mission 6-0, a veterans organization. It is Jason Van Camp on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jason, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have the opportunity, brother. All right. Well, listen, it's you and I have connected prior to this you know, podcast and chatted a lot, uh, but you know, we, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about our individual careers. How did your military career start at West Point? Oh, well, it started in, uh, on June 2nd, 1995. Started at Beast Barracks, which didn't necessarily go particularly well for me. I wasn't the greatest cadet uh, at West Point. In West Point history, I'm not going down in any cadet hall of fame. Um, <laughs> careers or anything like that brother so uh we started out um played some football there army football we were we we're pretty good my first year uh beat navy and second year i i left uh halfway between my sophomore yearling year to go serve a two-year mormon lds mission and i was selected to serve in st petersburg russia so i left for two years went and lived in russia and uh, i got back and um in January 1998, or I'm sorry, 99, January 1999, and then um, I graduated in 2001. Why West Point, though, as opposed to regular college or OTC? What was the what was the attraction there? You know, you hear a lot of guys saying things like, "I've always wanted to be an army officer," and uh, my dad served in the military, and he was a colonel or whatever, and I was a huge GI Joe fan, and man, I just wanted to be Rambo and all these things. I had none of that. I collected G.I. Joe figures when I was a kid. My dad really wasn't a, a military guy. Um, I was just fascinated with it. You know, I thought it was really interesting in, in the way that they stressed discipline and, and hard work. And I kind of looked up to those guys uh, that I saw in the military as I was growing up. And I love to hear their stories, at least the guys that told me their stories. And some of the guys that I, that I was introduced to uh, as I was growing up, even some of my uncles, they were just really shy about sharing their experiences in the military and their stories and i thought that was something that i wanted to to learn more about you know it was an interesting thing i was sitting at the dinner table uh during one family holiday with my dad and my uncles and and they were telling these hilarious stories about one thing or the next and a lot of the stories were um just about their military training not so much about their their experiences in vietnam or combat or anything like that and and I wanted to participate. I wanted to share my stories. I wanted to say something. But truth of the matter was, when I was a kid, I had nothing. I had no stories. And so I, I vowed during one of those dinners, I said to myself, you know what, Jason? One day, you're going to have more stories than all of these guys put together. And let's make that a goal. So since I was a kid, I've kind of lived my life trying to get more stories than everybody else. <laughs> well, given your military career, I'm sure you've got plenty. Hopefully we'll get to some of them here on the podcast. So you graduate in 2001. That means 9-11 hasn't happened yet. So where are you going right after graduation prior to 9-11? So we get to select a branch of the military that we, we can get commissioned an officer to. And, and um, 
since I played Army football, a lot of the guys that play on the Army football team elect to go field artillery. For one, you know, just because it seems like there's a lot of good dudes in field artillery. And you get to fire some cannons, the king of battle, the whole thing. So thinking about that, you know, I really did some soul searching. And I thought that field artillery would be a good branch for me. So I selected to go to field artillery. And I went right from West Point. I think we had two or three weeks off in the summer to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And so I, I arrived there, um, I want to say late June or early July. And um, I went to Officer Basic course so obc at fort sill and while i was there 9-11 hit we're i remember it very vividly we were in a classroom learning about <laughs> fire direction and uh jeff pickler who's whose father i think actually became a general was sitting in our class as a second lieutenant and he rushed out of the room and he was making some phone calls and apparently his father was at the, the pentagon and he came back in and he said, you know, the Pentagon has been attacked. And then we walked out and, you know, we went to the only TV that was in the building, which was by like a little coffee shop. And all of us were kind of huddled around this coffee shop looking at this small TV, you know, seeing, you know, the, the planes hit the towers and the Pentagon, and the whole thing. And we're just, this is unbelievable, you know. And, um, you know, a lot of the guys were, were in OBC kind of thinking to themselves, I'm going to serve my three years or five years and I'm going to get out. But as we were watching that plane hit, man, like everybody was, this is real guys. We're going to war. This is, this is a career. A lot of those guys are feeling some pretty patriotic emotions at that time. Were you? I was shocked, man. It got real pretty fast. Um, See, like, for me, was, I'm a native New Yorker, so I was angry. Like, you know, because it was, I, I felt like it was my city, it was my town, it's, you know, uh, I grew up in the shadows of, of the Twin Towers, so I was angry. And it's weird, everybody we talked to on the podcast always got told right after 9-11, it was, you know, hey, we're going to war. And for some reason, that thought never dawned into my mind. I guess because I was trying to track down so many family members and friends, and I was talking to, you know, family and friends, and we were trying to account for everybody that day. Like, for example, my brother had to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge to get home. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a cra- I just, I don't ever remember thinking we were going to war until a couple of days after. That's, I guess, when it finally settled in. But a lot of guys like you knew from the moment it happened. Yeah, man. I mean, it, it hit home. I was preparing to be an officer leading troops into, into battle. But the thing was, like, there were no battles going on, man. It was all about, you know, doing training in the States. You know, and that's how you got evaluated as, as an officer in your career. And now it's like, hey, man, things have shifted dramatically. You're going to war. What does that mean exactly? Because the people that trained us, you know, our professors and instructors, virtually none of them have even seen combat. Right. You know, we were being trained at West Point by people who've never been in a battle before. And now all of a sudden it's like, hey, man, shit just got real. Like, we're going to war. And so I think a lot of us were like, what does that mean exactly? Like, what are we doing? What are we going to do? How, how is this going to go down? You and, me- uh, yeah. You mentioned before, I'm sorry, but I'm just wondering, because you mentioned before that you weren't the most stellar West Point cadet. Uh, but yet, you know, once you got into the military, again, I mentioned in the open, you're a Ranger, you're a Green Beret, you know, you had all these complex missions that you did. Was it something about 9-11 that changed the course of your focus to say, hey, I want to go down this road? Or did you know by this point in time, hey, I'm going to be a Ranger, I'm going to try out for SF and see what happens? 
<laughs> that's, that's actually a pretty funny story. <laughs> uh, before, before before 9-11 went down, well, first off, I did not have a great West Point experience. A lot of people have phenomenal experiences, and they, they talk about their alma mater all day long. I went there. I didn't have a, I didn't have a great time. I didn't particularly enjoy it. Um, it wasn't too hard for me or anything like that. It just, you know, wasn't my thing, you know. Um, and it wasn't a good representation of the military. Once I left West Point and got into the military, I had a great time. I loved every second of it. I loved going to Ranger School. I loved going to Special Forces Selection and Q Course. My teams, it was phenomenal. Nothing like what what kind of West Point trained you to expect and in my in my uh, experience so right after i joined right after we got to obc uh, one of my closest friends his name's andy reese and we played football together at west point he comes up to me in class he's like hey man they're having a, a ranger brief after after class man and they're gonna ask guys to sign up for pre-ranger physical training and i was like interesting what does that mean he's like you know what we go through this ranger training program for six months, and then they let us, if we, if we uh, prove ourselves during this training, they'll give us a slot to go to ranger school. And I was like, huh, like, you really want it? He's like, yeah, man. I'm like, those guys are pretty crazy. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm doing it. And I said to myself, well, hell, Andy, if you're doing it, I got to do it too, man. So we show up to the ranger brief, and there was a field artillery guy who had his ranger tab, Super squared away, dude. Super intense guy. Basically, you know, yelling at us, telling us what to expect and how hard it's going to be and trying to make us quit before we even start. It didn't necessarily phase me. And he's like, all right, guys, tomorrow we're starting physical training. We're starting at 0430. Be at this field at this time. And so we left. And then I'm like, all right, Andy, you doing it? He's like, I'm going to be there. I said, I'll be there, too. So. 4.30 hits, I'm at the field with like 90 other guys. Wow. Problem was, no Andy Reese on the field at 0430. You're kidding and me. And so they they proceed, the Ranger pre-Ranger instructors proceed to just smoke our bags for two hours, you know. And I'm furious. I'm like, where the hell? So I, I get back to the, to the hotel we were staying at, and I knock on the door. I'm like, dude, where were you at, man? Like, if you miss one, one training, you can't. You can't go through it. He's like, dude, four thirty. It's so early, man. It was. Just, I was so tired. I just couldn't get up. <laughs> I was like, come on, brother. I was like, I can't quit now. I've already started it, so I followed through with it, and uh, it just got me in unbelievable shape. And everybody else of the ninety people that started, I we finished with twelve. Wow. And of those twelve, eight guys went to Ranger School in january and of those eight guys three guys graduated and i was one of those guys talk about attrition man jeez that's impressive now why did guys end up they they just couldn't keep up physically with the whole thing or what yeah physically i mean it's quite a commitment six months of waking up early monday through friday and then just smoking your your bags for for an hour and a half two hours every morning and these guys got after it now i mean they were they were pretty intense and then uh, sometimes on the weekend, they'd want us to, as it was getting closer to the time to go to ranger school, they would have us do field exercises in the woods, land navigation, that sort of thing, all for our benefit to get us prepared to go to ranger school. Nothing, you know, malicious or anything about it. And um, and uh, the guys just, you know, one point or the next, like, you know what, forget this. Ranger school doesn't mean that much to me or 
I'm too tired or I'm going to fake an injury or say my injury is more serious than it is or whatever it might be. Some guys got in trouble, you know, and then um, they just kind of, you know, natural attrition. Did any of that bother you? That people were sort of weak-willed, if you will? No, it actually gave me motivation. I think it gives more people motivation because it makes you feel more special or, or elite. You know, it's like when you're running, um, we would run five to 10 miles, you know, pretty fast. And I'm not a runner, man. Like, at least I wasn't born that way. I was more of the, you know, the football sprinter type. You can sprint for 60 seconds or whatever, but running long distance wasn't, wasn't anything that I trained for, prepared for a whole lot of going into the military. Uh, but when you're running a, like a five or 10 mile race and you see guys fall out, you don't feel sad about that. You don't feel depressed about that. It kind of gives you a little bit of adrenaline rush. Like that guy couldn't hack it. I can, I'm continuing to move forward. And, uh, the kind of same feeling with the attrition. There's some of my buddies that, you know, I did feel bad about that. They quit, you know, and I wanted them to succeed. So I tried to convince them to stay, but ultimately it's, it's up to the individual. If you can hack it, you can, if, if you know yourself, and if you can't, you know, you're not going to. When did you decide about going to special forces assessment and selection? Was this after Ranger school or you knew it before? So I got my Ranger tab and I went to Korea right away. It was my first duty station. And I walked into the battalion commander's um, office. He had like a secretary. And the battalion commander, when you walk into the office, he selects who, where he wants to send you. You know, so he's like, hey, I want you to go to this unit or that unit or whatever. Man, you might get a phenomenal unit, a phenomenal location, or you might be sent to, you know, the DMZ or the middle of nowhere. You know, so I walked in the office and this sergeant, E7, walks in and he sees the Ranger tab on my sleeve and his eyes light up. And he's like, Ranger qualified. And I kind of look at him and I see he has a Ranger tab too. And he's like, hey, you're going to my unit. Like, we're going to take care of you, man. I'm trying to get all the Ranger guys to come here. I'm like, okay. So right away, I saw the benefits of having a Ranger tab. I mean, the guy didn't even know me. He didn't know my name. He didn't know my history, my background. He didn't even know if I was a good officer or not. He just said, this guy's a Ranger, qualified dude. Because he's wearing that tab, I already know so much about him. He's going to the best unit. So he selected me. And the battalion commander really didn't even get a chance to even talk to me. And I spent a year in Korea, like premium spot, which was awesome. And I saw that and how many doors a Ranger tab kind of opens up for you uh, in the military. And, you know, I was very proud to be a Ranger, you know, and I was considering going to uh, a regiment and trying out for that when some buddies of mine who were Rangers as well opened up the idea of trying out for the special forces. And how things were working out with this, with this special forces at the time is those guys were the tip of the spear, you know, going into Iraq, Afghanistan, right. doing some incredible things and not really knowing, you know, there weren't a whole lot of books out at the time about what was going on with the Green Berets and the SEALs and things like that. Jason, what, and, what, uh, what, what time was yeah. this as far as year? Is it 2002, 2003? Where are we before you go to the so assessment selection? Yeah, we're we're around 2003. Okay, so Iraq had kicked off at this point in time. So in my career, brother, I went to OBC in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and then I went to Ranger School, and then following Ranger School, I immediately went to Korea for a year, and then following Korea, I immediately went to Iraq for a year, 
And then I got back to the 101st Airborne Division of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And what uh, was my unit at the time after I left Korea. And then I decided to try out for Special Forces Selection. Okay, so you had a deployment under your belt before you got your long tab as, as a Green Beret. That's right. Okay. What did you do on that first deployment uh, as an artillery guy with a Ranger tab? So showed up to my unit. It was uh, an infantry company. I was the fire support officer, so I was an artillery attachment to an infantry company. And I would call in uh, any type of artillery, indirect, direct fires um, on enemy forces. And quite frankly, we didn't do a whole lot of that. We did more of illumination, you know, firing flares and, you know, illumination uh, type of projectiles up in the air. So um, I get to my unit. We're up in Talifar, Iraq, which is on the Syrian border right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole lot of um, Kurds up there and and um, it's near Sinjar Mountain. You know, the Yazidi tribes are up there, which are a different type of religion than than the, the Muslim religion. And uh, we're up there. And, you know, quite frankly, man, the uh, the enemy forces, you know, the, the Iraqi forces, enemy forces, insurgents, they gave up. They just kind of threw down their arms when we showed up. And there wasn't a whole lot of anything going on. Man. <laughs> um, so we did a whole lot of rebuilding, you know, so we'd engage with uh, local uh, police and local army guys and we trained them a little bit we reestablished buildings we um opened up trains you know commerce for the first time and we just meet with people and gather information you know there wasn't wasn't anything crazy going on we um we went and tried to do a couple missions dry holes really nothing happened we weren't ever attacked on the road it was pretty relaxed as opposed to future rotations you know it's funny is you say that i understand exactly what you're talking about and it makes sense to me for the non-military folks who never deployed the concept of just being in iraq no matter where it is to them probably i don't want to say scares them per se but it's just not a very appealing thing and you know i, I know exactly what you're talking about you say there's really nothing going on like that happens you know i mean it's just it's i don't know if the average civilian can con can comprehend the concept of nothing happening when you say you're deployed to Iraq, but I mean, just, just wondering for those civilians listening out there. So you get back and you go to uh, assessment selection for special forces. What is the one lasting memory you take from special forces assessment and selection? Man, that's a tough question. What is the one thing? I remember so many things. Uh, I think the one thing I would remember is um, the concept of, of friendship. You know, the people that I met that I, you know, establish lifelong bonds with the guys that, you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, but the one thing, if you're saying one thing you remember, we were out in phase two, which is uh, small unit tactics. And that lasts a few months uh, out in the woods with your team. And uh, we finished our last mission and they put us in a, in a truck and they were driving us back to uh, Camp McCall. And it's, it's, close to you know sundown but it's absolutely overcast raining cats and dogs thundering just pouring down rain and i'm in the back of this truck where the flap is you know and i'm just getting drenched and uh <laughs> i just remember looking over at my guys and they were just laughing at me being as soaked as i 
as if I had jumped in a lake. And one of the guys starts singing a song like, um, you know, I got friends in low places. Mm-hmm. And some of the guys kind of start singing that along. And I just remember like we're coming back from this long, you know, months long thing. And, and, uh, and just remember that and, and the, the friends there and, and having such a great time because the whole Q course qualification course to me was, was a blast. I loved every second of it. And it, I learned so much about myself and about my teammates and I grew because of it. And that was really impactful. All right. So when you get back to your second deployment in Iraq, you are now special forces qualified and knowing what I know of that environment, I was fortunate enough to uh, be attached to those guys during my first deployment. Um, There was plenty to do for you during your second deployment. Second deployment was insane, man. So, (laughs) I mean, she was crazy. It was unbelievable. I get to my team, so I graduate in October. I get graduate in Octo- late October, and I go year? to my team of 2006. Okay. And let me think, 2005 or six? 2006. Okay. Yeah, 2006. So I graduate in 2006, and I um, get assigned to go to 10 Special Forces Group in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Beautiful. And uh, you get assigned a language because, you know, you're a Green Beret. You have to speak a fluent language or at least try to. Uh, I, I did speak a fluent language. I spoke and I do speak Russian because I spent two years in Russia. You know, so I kind of leg up on a lot of guys. And um, and I get assigned to go to 10th group and I show up in December and practically nobody's there because the holidays and we're getting ready to deploy again in February, late February. And so my company commander says, all right, Jason, we're going to put you on this team here. Um, it's a mountain team. And I'm like, okay, uh, no idea how to climb a mountain. I've never you know, done mountaineering before, but okay, got it. What else? He's like, we're deploying the entire uh, group over to Iraq. And uh, the thing is, we're not going to take your team. Whoa. So I'm like, okay, why? He's like, well, you're brand new you know, uh, detachment commander, you haven't had time to train with your guys, you know, and we're, we've got to leave a couple teams back in the rear to do, um, different types of, um, events, you know, taskings and, you know, keeping track of different things like that. Basically BS stuff, right? Yeah. Paperwork stuff. (laughs) You know, we need somebody to go to, you know, Arizona and complete this training. We need somebody to go. And so we did send us our team to do that. And so I get back to my team and I kind of meet him for the first time. And, and, uh, one of the older, um, NCOs on the team is like, you know, kind of comes up to me. I don't even know him, you know, hardly His name was Aaron. He's like, Hey, sir, uh, we're not staying behind in the rear. So I don't care what you got to do. You make sure that we get to Iraq. And if you don't, then we know something about you. And he just walks away. Wow. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> my heart, bud. Uh, so I kind of go, you know, I, I spend some time thinking about it. What was, what was the look like, in his eye, though? I mean, like, were you, were you scared at that or no? Like, not like scared, scared, but you get my point. But you're like, e. Yeah, you know, his, the look in his eye was determination. Like, you better make this happen or I'm going to, you know, beat the hell out of you type thing. <laughs> I kind of bowed up a little bit like, hey, I'm not going to I'm not going to cower to you, brother. You know what I mean? Like, but also I'm going to listen to you. And so I'm thinking to myself, 
you know, I want to impress these guys. You know, I want these guys to like me. I want to have a great team. Uh, I want us to be on the same page. And I'm like, if I don't get this Iraq deal, like, I can't ever live up to expectations. Like, I'll always be the guy that didn't get the mission. And I was like, well, I'm a pretty good briefer. What could I do? You know, so I went to my company commander. He listened to maybe a sentence of what I said. He's like, nope, not happening. And he kind of, you know, shut the book that he was had open on his desk and kind of ushered me out the door, brushed me off. You know, so I talked to some of the other team leaders in the in the in the company. I'm like, any chance? And like, Jason, we don't even have another location for you to go to. All the spots have been filled. And I'm like, damn. I'm like, well, is there anything I can do? And one of the guys who was a friend of mine, um, Clay Daniels. You know, he's a he, he's spe- uh, obviously a special forces guy, but we played army football together. He was a year older than me in graduation. He was a, a team leader of a Halo team across the hall from mine. So we kind of started talking and we developed a little bit of a plan of maybe somewhere I could go. And I was able to get in front of the group commander and pitch him why he should take our team. And I just left it all out there, man, exposed my heart, you know, gave him some pretty credible solutions to bringing us out and reasons to bring us out. And uh, he said, I like, I like your enthusiasm. You got it, man. And so my company commander wasn't necessarily happy about that. Yeah, I can imagine. But they, they let us go. And so they didn't have a spot for us. So I was an alpha company guy. They didn't have a spot for us in alpha company. So they attached us to Charlie company and they let us go. What, did, so, what did your sergeant yeah. say to you when you told him that you, you had gotten a, a deployment? Just kind of gave me the no words, just a look, a head nod, you know, a slow head nod with with a smirk and then walked away. Was that, was that enough for you? Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I had so much on my mind at the time, man. I wasn't thinking like I looking for his approval. I'm just thinking to myself, it's appreciated. You know, thanks for the nod, bro. Let's get to work. Well, speaking of work, you get there. And as you said, it was crazy. Tell me about it. So we didn't have a place to go. So I had to literally find a location for us to be at. And um, we looked for a spot in a place where we hadn't had U.S. forces, the presence of coalition forces for quite some time. And I found a spot in the Diala province near a town called Jalula. And it was in Asadia. And there hadn't been any coalition forces presence there in over, I think, three years. And uh, we know that there was an Iraqi army battalion there. Not a whole lot of information was being put out about the location, you know, but um, we figured it was fairly close to where Charlie Company was situated. So we we could look at maybe going there. And so uh, when we deployed, we we you know moved to Jalula. And so what happens once you get there on ground? So the first first day we're there, I kind of go on the PDSS, the pre-deployment site survey. And I'm stationed with another detachment at their base. And I take three vehicles from their base to go scout out Jalula. So we go there and we meet the Iraqi Army battalion commander, he's a, he's a good dude. 
and we were able to negotiate um, a deal where we could bring our team up there and we could kind of integrate our team, our forces with that Iraqi army and we could train them up and we could use them as our, as our force, indigenous fighting force. And, uh, and we left, went back to the, the, uh, the previous team's headquarters, their base right there. So the second day, we're going to go back out and continue to do our survey. And my company commander that I was attached to, the Charlie company commander, calls me as we were in the vehicles leaving the base. And he's like, Jason, I'm flying into your location. I need to talk to you. You stay behind. I said, okay, no problem, sir. So I turned the convoy around. We go back to this base and I get out and I have my guys replace me. And one of the guys, uh, Scott Hendrickson, he replaced me in the vehicle. I said, all right, Scott, here's what I need you to do, man. You guys need to go to this new base. Can you check it out? These are the questions I need you to ask. This is what I need you to find out. Go for it. And he's like, got it, sir. No problem. I'm on it. So they take off. I walk back inside and I'm taking my helmet off, and my body armor off. I'm putting my weapon down. And we get a call on the radio. And it feels like it just it was in, immediate. Troops in contact, troops in contact, troops in contact. And I walk over to the radio and I'm like, hey, who's in contact? And one of the guys in the room was like, you, like your guys are in contact. I'm like, what? I'm like, what are you talking about? They just left like five minutes ago. And I guess it must have been 10, 15 minutes. They're like, yeah, those are your guys. And so we kind of get on the radio. There's not a whole lot of response from my guys. So we're like, hey, let's load up, man. Let's go right now. So I throw my body armor back on, get my weapon. You know, some of the guys from the team that are there grab their stuff and we take off. And I'm taking off down the road in a white Toyota Hilux truck with no doors and no armor to speak of. And we're just hauling ass down the road uh, outside this base to try to find out what happened to my guys. What, you know, they're in, they're in contact. So we get to the location and uh two humvees are off the side of the road um and the humvee that i was in and the lead vehicle was flipped over and you know hundreds of yards down the road from where um where the other two vehicles were and we look and there's a huge crater in the middle of the road so enemy forces had put an ied in a culvert which is you know like a a tunnel underneath one of the major highways, one of the major roads and blew it up and it blew up my vehicle and it flipped my vehicle. And so the driver uh, was uh, a translator, American translator. Uh, I think he's Iraqi descent. Uh, He was killed in the blast. Uh, The guy that took my place in the vehicle in the front, he uh, had both of his arms at the elbows rolled back so completely broke his arms uh, in two my gunner scott he was in the turret and he got thrown from the humvee i mean it was unbelievable 100 yards down the road and he landed on his weapon on his uh, m4 snapped the m4 in two you know severely injured his back gave him a concussion where he didn't even know what was going on for two weeks and he was we found him he was trying to put his weapon back together to engage the enemy. 
and um, and the guy in the back, he was uh, another. He was an Iraqi translator as well. He was he was very very badly injured. Uh, I think he actually lost his leg as a result of it. So we get to those guys um, and get them on a helicopter and get them out of there. And so we were under attack when we showed up. There was no gunfire. There was nothing like that. We were just treating our guys and getting out of there. So I walked down to where the hole is, and I kind of walked down under the, the road, and I see two copper wires. I kind of bring some guys out, and we follow the copper wires to a berm, you know, a sand berm out in the desert, and we see, you know, the initiator, and we see some, you know, bomb type materials and we see some motorcycle tracks um away from that berm location into into the desert so we asked the guys that were there if they saw anything they didn't see anything we just know that that was the case so that was on our second day two of my two of the guys on my 12-man team were lost for for the entire uh deployment and so that was that's pretty insane i mean did you ever stop to think that I mean, obviously you have that you, you were in that seat i mean that could have been you with both your arms broken in or maybe even worse i mean how, how how do you reconcile that thought i don't know man it's insane i think about it a lot and what's even crazier is um my company commander uh, charlie company commander who told me to stay behind you know um he asked me that and i was like well sir you called me and told me to stay behind and he's like no i didn't and i was like what are you talking about I was like you absolutely did you know what i mean it, it was crazy it was almost like uh i don't know it makes you really believe in fate and things are meant to happen for a reason um you know thank god my guys didn't die and they returned to service and they're exceptional special forces uh, soldiers right now but it really makes you think it really does it's your time to go it's your time you know so but he, i mean he was he messing with you he didn't call you then who called who was on the phone he didn't recall it Really? He did not recall? Wow. I said, sir, you called me. You told me, I'm Cecilia. I said, hey, sir, you told me to stay behind. You were going to fly into my location. He's like, no, I didn't. I didn't say that at all. And I was like, all right. Either it was, you know, some sort of <laughs> religious experience or he just forgot about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it as he forgot about it because he absolutely did. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have turned around. <sighs> That's a, wow. That's just, phew. So it's a lot to grasp right there. That's day two. What else happens day on day two? <laughs> what else happens on this deployment? I mean, because again, we, we talked in the, the intro about your nearly three hundred capture or kill missions. What what were those like? Because the tempo must have been unreal. You guys only deploy special forces companies for you know six seven months at a time. Do the math. That's one hundred and eighty days. You know, one hundred or two hundred days and three hundred missions. The, the math doesn't seem to work out that well. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say this right now. So on my OER over the course of uh, two, three deployments and and uh, some J sets, you know, they they put 300 missions. Now, is that an accurate number? <laughs> I'm gonna tell you right now, probably not. But we did a lot of you know uh, missions, which we would kind of categorize as a as a kind of a type one, type two, or type three mission. And type three missions are are more of the you know convoy operations are, are going on um you know without precision information type stuff and i think they might have included that as well so just want to make that clear that um you know we went on quite a few missions um hundreds you know but as far as giving you an accurate count you know just 
want to be upfront about that, man. No, that's, I mean, that's fine. I, I wonder, did that second day and everything that went, for lack of a better term, went wrong? Because nothing really went wrong. That's just combat. It's war. That's the way things go. But for everything that happened that day, did it prepare you for other events down the road? Oh, no doubt, man. Um, How so? Everything that you do in life kind of prepares you for future events. And I feel at the time that I was weak, I was soft, um, and I became a hard man. I, I saw things, I did things, I made decisions um, that I had to as a leader. And that turned me into a very experienced and uh, I would say, you know, for lack of a better term, hard man, you know. The second day we were there, we lose two guys. You know, there's no messing around. You know, there's no, okay, maybe let me do this guy a favor. Or, hey, you know, he doesn't feel like going on this mission anymore. No, it's all about accomplishing the mission, you know, foregoing emotions and feelings and things that are happening back home and, and really becoming a lot more mentally, physically, spiritually, socially, emotionally, and professionally tougher. I think that's what, um, what happened to me during that second deployment. I became tougher in all aspects of life. The, uh, the sergeant who told you that you had to get on the deployment, he wasn't one of the guys who was injured, was he? No, he was one of the guys that I took out with me to recover the guys gotcha. that got injured. Okay. And, uh, and, um, so we, he actually got injured in a, in a subsequent IED and it wasn't, it wasn't a crazy IED, but he got his head, his bell rung a little bit. He got his head injured and then he had to deploy back to the States. What's the, what's the word for that? I mean, you know, just, I guess, coincidence, if you will. I guess, you know, he, he developed a seizure disorder from, from that experience. And so, uh, he started having epileptic seizures and tonic clonic seizures and, and so forth. And, and when you get to that point, you know, you can't jump out of airplanes, you can't fire weapons, you can't really be trusted because you can't control it. Right. Yeah. You know, you put your, you put your teammates at risk. When you look back on all the missions that you did and everything, is there one that stands out more than another for any particular reason? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about the worst, um, the toughest experience that we had. I mean, we had a, a mission in that same deployment uh, during the tail end of the, the deployment on August 15th. And uh, we went, so I'll set the stage for that. So after those motorcycles left, we kind of got word, um, well, we kind of found out in that area that Hey man, we just walked into a, a hornet's nest. You know, there was a reason why there weren't, you know, coalition forces there. The enemy knew that and they moved in. And so we were looking at a battalion Al Qaeda stronghold where we just plopped down our detachment. Sitting on a hornet's nest. And what we found out is, you know, when we moved into this Iraqi army base, we were getting mortared from across this river. Uh, several times a week, you know, and it was, it was insane. And we were talking to the Iraqi army and we're like, Hey guys, are you going to do something about this? Like, let's, let's get our forces going and let's move. And they're like, hell no. <laughs> like if we do that, they're going to kill us and all of our families and the whole thing. I was, so you're going to sit here and just get mortared. It's better than, you know, the alternative. <laughs> I'm like, all right, listen, we need to find somebody else then. So there were some people in the Iraqi army that did want to fight. 
And uh, they're they're fantastic soldiers, fantastic officers, and a lot of these guys were were Kurdish. And we said, okay, can we bring some Kurdish soldiers down into this area to help us fight that we could train? And they're like, you know, Captain Jason, we've been trying to do this for years. And so my commander, you know, chain of command, everybody started hearing about the things that we were getting into and firefights and getting mortared every night and IEDs and and finally, it dawned on them, like, these guys are in some serious stuff here. Like, we should help these guys out. And so I put in a petition, a request to bring Kurdish soldiers down um, to our area, which had never been done before. And that request went all the way up to General Petraeus, and he accepted it. Wow. And and we brought Kurdish soldiers down into my area. And overnight, I became a hero, a national hero of the Kurdish of Kurdistan you know they're like thank you Captain Jason they're like kissing my cheeks and also you brought us down we've always you know uh, hey guys I don't care about all that what I do care about is is taking the fight to the enemy and so we trained these guys uh, and we went across the river to fight these guys to fight Al-Qaeda this force over there and as is usually the case you know they see us coming in a large force they leave and then when we leave they come back in, you know, and they start the whole thing over again. So what I did, which was kind of unorthodox, unconventional, I mean, we are special forces guys. I said, you know what, instead of us leaving, how about we stay here? And I convinced the Kurdish soldiers, who was led by a general named Shetu, to permanently establish a stronghold across the river in this village. And the village was called Tibich. So as we were driving to this location to to clear this this area, we encountered 13 IEDs in the road. Oh my god! Uh, disarmed them all. You know, we get to the we get to the village. You know, we we go house to house. We clear it up. No no enemy fighters. You know, we do some hasty interrogations of quite a few people. And and what I tell Shetu is, all right, man, you guys will stay here all summer long. Is that okay? Got it. Thank you, Captain Jason, for bringing us down here. All right, here's how you can repay me. So we leave, we take our Humvees, the enemy sees us in the village. And as they do, Shetu and all the Kurdish soldiers start snatching them up one by one. And they're, you know, surprised and disappointed. And, and we start putting these guys in, um, you know, in our, in our prisons. Start interrogating these guys, getting information, finding out what's going on and, and so forth. So, um, we cleared that area, and then we started to continue to clear this entire uh, province. And uh, what happens is, you know, we we hear that there's um, non-confirmed that there's some uh, some Al Qaeda uh, top commanders, you know, meeting at this one location across across this lake, you know, and um, we figure, hey. Let's go. Uh, let's go take a look. Let's go see what's what's going on out there. So uh, on August fifteenth, we go out there, and I take my team. I take a uh, hundred Kurdish soldiers with me, and we go into this area. And it's a small village on this lake. And as we kind of crest over the berm, I'm in the first vehicle. Uh, I see three trucks taking off, like hauling ass down the road away from us. And so I kind of give the word to my guys to go in and. Um, assault this village and, and take down those trucks. And so all hell breaks loose and we, we go take down the trucks and, and um, 
I put myself up in a position on this berm where can I, I can observe the entire battle, you know, and direct my troops where they need to go. And I can call in air support and medevac and the whole thing, which is what you do as a detachment commander anyway, a lot of communication and reporting to hire and, you know, and so forth. So as this battle is going down, we start hearing gunshots from uh, the rooftop of one of the main buildings. And so I hear, you know, eagle down, eagle down, eagle down. And uh, I mean, awful. You know, you don't ever want to hear that. So I get in my vehicle and I get my medic and we get uh, in that vehicle and we we rush to where that building was. And uh, I see my team sergeant and he's sitting on his sitting down with his legs spread out, um, propped up against this wall of this building, dirt building. You know, I look at him. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? And he kind of looks at me with like kind of defeated eyes, you know, and, and I'm like, what's up? I was like, what's the matter? And, and I can see he's been shot, you know, and um, I get to him, ask him where he's been shot. And he kind of shows me his legs and uh, we get his medic, our medic Tim to, to start taking care of him, you know, and I, and I know we had two more guys over there. So I kind of go around the corner and I see two of my guys, one guy, Chris, he's kind of on all fours and he's just acting frantically. He kind of lost his mind a little bit. I'm like, I'm like, Chris, what are you doing? You know? And he kind of couldn't speak, you know, and I see Rob, he's laying on his back. And I said, and I was like, Rob, and, and Chris goes, he's been shot. And I go to Rob and I, and I look at him and I don't see any blood. And I'm like, kind of, you know, aggressively feeling his shirt, taking his shirt off and his legs and looking for blood. And I go, where, where was he shot? And Chris goes, he, in the head. And I look at the helmet and the helmet had um, a tracer round through the Kevlar, oh. you know, kind of followed across the Kevlar. And Rob was, he was alive. He was, you know, he was struggling to breathe and I pull off his helmet and, um, you know, just blood everywhere. It just, you know, kind of goes all over the dirt and I, I grab his head with my hands and I kind of hold it together, you know, and I, I'm starting yelling for my medic, Tim, and, you know, and Tim comes over and I'm like, we got to get it. We got to get these guys out of here. And dude, it was unbelievable, awful, awful feeling, you know, that hey, you're the commander, you are in charge of everything that your team does and fails to do. Uh, this happened you know, you're responsible, you know, and, um, I'm thinking to myself, we got to get these guys treated. We'll get these guys out of here. They'll be fine. You know, I, I just kind of had that really optimistic feeling like things are going to work out, you know? So, um, my medic puts my team sergeant in the back of the truck and we kind of lift Rob up and we put him on the top of the Humvee and the medic Tim gets in the vehicle and he kind of reverses the Humvee and, flips it around and we, we head off into the berm where it's safe. And, uh, we take the guys down off the vehicle and, you know, I call all of my guys back for support. And, um, you know, we, we treat our guys and there was some enemies that were, were killed as well, you know, that were injured and killed. And, and we kind of pulled some of those bodies back as well, uh, to interrogate and to talk, you know, and to find out what's going on. And, and, um, we found out there was, Al-Qaeda battalion commander was having a meeting with his top 
lieutenants at this at this um this building and we just so happened to surprise them in the middle of the day and they didn't think we were going to be there and um we called in some medevacs and we got rob and and don my team sergeant out of there and um called in some air support and we took down that that building and we're still getting some uh some resistance and so i organized a couple of my guys and we went in there in that building and we cleared it you know room to room and uh we captured 16 guys 16 bad guys that day and um and then uh, we got back to our base and we heard uh uh don was gonna be fine uh, but rob had, had expired rob who got shot in the head was was no longer with us so that was of all to answer your question i know this is a long answer but that certainly was the the worst um and memorable most memorable experience from all of my combat deployments and specifically the second one well look my my heart goes out to you i, I know words are of little solace um but you know for somebody who's you know, walk that same turf that you did. And I mean, you know, as well as I do, combat is unforgiving and it's certainly, uh, it, it doesn't, doesn't pick and choose people. It's just, it's random. And, um, there are a lot of people who, who did the right things and still got hurt. And a lot of people did the wrong things and survived. And there's not much, like I said, anything I could say is going to make you feel better, but, um, you know, it, it's just, that, that's got to stay with you every single day. And, and I don't know, um, I don't know how, how you ever make that go away or even if you wanted to. It doesn't go away. It doesn't. Have you just learn, learn to live with it, um, such as, as life, things that happen to you kind of shape you into who you are. You know, I, I don't want to forget it. And uh, although I do wish it never happened, you know, it's, it's definitely tough. Um, It's, uh, it's a terrible experience, and uh, I would never wish that on, on anyone to experience something similar. Uh, I, I hear you, brother. Listen, and, uh, again, just uh, I'm sorry you went through that. You know, um, I, I know you know it's, it's not your fault. doesn't mean you don't feel it. doesn't mean you don't take the blame and the responsibility as the leader because as leaders we're responsible for everything that happens and doesn't happen, and I know you know that, but um, it's it just I, I want to try to offer up as much support as I can for you because – the story is, is touching, you know, it's just, it's, uh, you lose one of your guys and it's just, it's something that's never, never easy. Is that the reason why you started Mission Six Zero? Partly, um, partly. So like I was talking about earlier, guys that served in combat in the Vietnam era and earlier, they, for whatever reason, they don't like to share their experiences. It's something they're not going to do. You know, but for a guy like me to that's so interested and so curious, I always want to know, you know, I always want to find out, you know, what was it like to be in combat? What was it like to do these things? And I find that the people that have gone through those experiences are the people that can help you overcome those experiences when you go through them yourself. You know, at West Point, there's a lot of guys telling you a lot about combat and leadership that had never experienced it, you know, and I never really resonated with that. You know, I wanted to talk to people that had actually done it and lived it and could tell me what exactly it's like and, and how to do it and what to, how to do it effectively, successfully. And, and when things don't go right, how to overcome that. I like to talk to guys that have gone through similar experiences to tell them, hey, 
it's going to be okay. And this is how it's going to be okay. And, and this is what you should expect. And talk, speaking from someone who actually knows what it's like, you know, rather than having read a book or having, you know, heard somebody else tell me the story, you know, so that's, it's important to share the stories from my experiences so that we don't forget, you know, and then also to help people out, you know, when they're going through similar experiences. When you, when you put Mission Six Zero together, uh, outside of, you know, all that you just explained was, what else did you want to accomplish with it? Yeah, man. So I had an opportunity to start a business when I went to get my MBA and I got my MBA at Brigham Young University and they give, you know, essentially there's a class that you can take and competition where you can start your own business. And I've had many friends, um, get out of the military or maybe they haven't even served in the military that have started their own businesses and have been very successful doing that. And uh, I said to myself, well, one day I'd like to start my own business. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to do that, what would I potentially do? And I thought to myself, well, I'd like to combine my, my passion and my experiences. And so my experiences at that, at that point was mainly military experiences, leadership, team building, that sort of thing. And I thought to myself, well, what am I passionate about? And I really thought about it. And I said, man, you spent a lot of time watching sports, Jason, you know, specifically <laughs> professional sports. I said, maybe there's a chance to combine professional sports in the military. What does that look like? I'm not sure. Um, flash forward to one of my best friends, Nate Boyer. Nate and I, you know, we went through the Q course together. We were in 10th group together. We were on sister teams and uh, Nate was at my house while we were living in Colorado after one of the deployments. And he's like, Jay, uh, I'm going to tell you something. Don't tell anybody. I'm getting out of the military. And I'm like, really? I'm like, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to go back to college. And I was like, okay. As any good you know, officer would, you want to find out what you guys are going to go do. You know, Make sure that they're squared away and they're set up for success. I said, where are you going to go? He said, well, I've got two, two ideas, bro. I'm going to go to USC or Texas. I'm not sure which. I'm like, okay, why? He's like, well, they have the two best college football programs. <laughs> and this was, you know, this was back in the day when they were outstanding, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, Nate, man, you can't just pick a, a college because they've got a good football team, man. What are you going to study? What are you going to do? He's like, hey, you don't get it, man. I'm going to go play football. I'm like, you're going to play football? He's like, yeah, man. He's like, don't tell anybody. I'm like, all right. Um, you're 165 pounds, man. <laughs> He's like, I know. I'm like, well, you're five, eight. He's like, I'm five, nine. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, you're 29 years old. He's like, so what? I'm like, well, all right, man. Like, what'd you play in high school? He's like, oh, I didn't play football in high school. My high school didn't have a football team. I'm like, Okay. I'm like, well, what'd you play when you were a kid? He's like, my mom wouldn't let me play Pop Warner when I was a kid. I was like, so you've never played football before in your life? He's like, well, I mean, come on. We played like on the field all the time. I'm like, it's a different game, bro. I'm like, okay. Um, here's my thing. If you're going to go down there and do it, man, first, you're going to need my help. And second, I'm thinking you can really play potentially two positions you could be a slot receiver or a strong safety he's like awesome i love it 
what's a slot receiver? <laughs> I'm like, bro, you got a long road ahead of you, man. <laughs> that is fantastic. And oh, by the way, Nate was a earlier guest on the, uh, the Hazard Ground podcast. You can hear his whole story in one of our earlier episodes. And so how does that whole uh, transaction end between the two of you? So, uh, so I help him out for a year and he kind of does some stuff on his own and kind of busts his tail. I mean, he's one of the hardest workers you'll ever meet in your life. And he uh, gets accepted in the University of Texas. And he goes into the strength and conditioning coach during spring, during the spring. And he says, Hey, I want to walk onto the team. And the coach says, you know what, Nate, we've got over 200 guys walking onto the team this year, trying out, they're going to be practice dummies. Go right ahead. We'll get you suited up and you can do it too. And so uh, Nate does that. And he kind of makes a name for himself by being tougher than some of the other, you know, 18, 19 year old kids out there. And uh, from how it, how it was told to me uh, during one of the last days of spring ball, Coach Mac Brown and the strength and conditioning coach stand in the middle of the field and they say, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're only going to take one walk on to come back in August. The whole team, six laps around the field, the first guy to make it back of the walk-ons gets a spot on the team. So the whole team takes off. And Nate laps the entire team twice. Oh, my God. Wow. And he, he, no, seriously, the guy's like a – he's an unbelievable runner. He used to run like nine-minute, two-mile two runs, man. And uh, he gets in the middle of the field, and Coach Brown says, congratulations, Nate. You just made University of Texas football team. And so I was like a proud papa, man. I was so stoked for him. I came down to see him uh, during Veterans Day weekend that year. And he was, you know, freshman on the team. He was running out of the tunnel with the flag and the whole thing, man. It was awesome. And um, and they play Oklahoma State, and they just got crushed. <laughs> you know, they got – it was like 41 to 10 or something. And, you know, after the game, we go hang out with Nate. We get to the locker room, the whole thing. He, you know, pulls out the red carpet for us. Um, and I'm talking to Nate, kind of talking trash to him a little bit. It's, you know, any good friend would. I'm like, well, Nate – Last year, Texas goes to the national championship. And this year, you guys are like four and seven when Nate Boyer comes to town, you know, and, and we kind of were laughing about that. And he's like, Jay, you know what? He's like, it's interesting you say that. And I was like, why? He's like, well, you know, our offense is essentially the same offense that we had last year. We've got guys that can run four through forties. We've got, we got guys that can jump out of the building. We just are missing our starting quarterback and like a, our former starting left tackle. I'm like, interesting. And he's like, you know, on defense, we're returning basically the same defense, missing a couple guys. I was like, so what's the problem, man? He's like, you know what, Jay? He's like, I'm 29 years old. We've been through combat together. We've been through training together. I'll tell you what. What this team is lacking is leadership. Yeah. And I was like, wow, man. He's like, you know, Jay, the difference between going to a national championship and being a losing team is the leadership. I was like, that's pretty powerful, bro. I was like, I think there could be something here. And so Nate and I kind of collaborated with some other uh, of, you know, leaders that we've met throughout our lives in the special forces and in other places, guys that we really respected and admired. You know, I said to myself, I would want, if I ever had a son, I would want my son to go into a room with these guys and just soak up everything that they are, you know, through, you know, osmosis or whatever it might be. And we created this company called Mission Six Zero, and we combined, you know, these skills, leadership, team building, um, 
culture, stress management, those type of skills. And we went to professional sports teams and we asked them if they'd be interested in hiring us to help with their performance. And that's kind of what we do at Mission Six Zero. Well, look, it's it's a phenomenal company. Obviously, again, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you and I have chatted a bunch away from the actual podcast about what you have going on with Mission Six Zero and just you know ideas and, and philosophies in general. And you know, I support everything that you guys have going on. It's Mission the Number Six and Zero Z E R O dot com. Mission Six Zero is the website to go to for all the information. And uh, you know, listen, uh, brother. I'm glad I've gotten a chance to know you. I'm glad that you and I have, uh, you know, developed a, a professional relationship. But, you know, as that continues, I know we'll develop a friendship as well. And uh, I just wish you nothing but the best of success with Mission Six Zero and everything you guys are doing. And um, I just I appreciate your time and your candor. And, and certainly you being part of this podcast means the world to me. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been an honor to be with you. And I, and I hope that nobody takes um, anything away from the podcast that I, that I didn't intend. You know, it, it was just want to be a very humble, authentic person that can provide people opportunities to um, be a better person and to, to learn and to improve their lives in some capacity. Jason Van Camp, Mission60.com. Thanks for the time, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, Send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.